Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. With the massive sale of the Peggy and David Rockefeller collection at Christie's this May, the global art market reaches another major inflection point. Ten years ago, Christie sold Yves Saint Laurent and Pierre Berger's collection during the depths of the financial crisis. That sales success signaled the importance of art as a global store of value. It also showed how much people were willing to pay for the personal effects of a very famous person. I spoke with Mark Porter, chairman of Christie's in the Americas, who's leading this sale about what it takes to run such a massive global event. Mark Porter, I've seen the crowds in Paris, the lines around the block in London, the press coverage from all over Hong Kong, all for the Peggy and David Rockefeller estate. You have been spending past year, it sounds like, uh, really doing nothing but running this rather large and complex operation. I wonder if you could take a few minutes to just describe for us the scope of this sale, and then we can talk about some of the mechanics of it and how it all comes together. The sale will likely be the most valuable series of all that we've ever seen, um, although not certainly in terms of absolute numbers of lots. There are about 900 lots in the series of um, live traditional auctions and another 700 lots in the online-only context. The traditionally sold lots are divided into two evening sales, one featuring the great collection of Impressionist and modern pictures, and the next evening, the sale of the Art of the Americas using the model that a lot of museums in the United States and elsewhere have developed over the last few years of looking at the Americas, both North and South, as a multi-layered culture. So in that sale will include the 18th century pictures like the splendid and important George Washington portrait, the American modernism largely provided to the Rockefeller family by Edith Halpert, the amazing woman who ran the downtown gallery, and will also include the greatest Diego Rivera to come to market in the last 30 years, which the Rockefellers have had since, uh, I believe it was 1931, when it was created for the Diego Rivera retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art. In the day sales, there will be a full selection of decorative arts. Uh, It's primarily English furniture rather than French furniture, American furniture, American decorative arts, and then one of the most splendid groups of European porcelain, French porcelain, German porcelain, and English porcelain, with a special attention to their great love, which is nature, so many, many birds and animals. Are are the uh, porcelain sets being sold as sets? They are. So there are 60-some porcelain services, so flat porcelain and sugar bowls and objects like that, they will be sold as sets. But the sets vary from service for 12 or 18 to a dessert service, which may include only eight or 10 objects. Uh, And there is the full panoply of services represented from traditional English through to French imperial porcelain made for Napoleon. 
This is really an estate in the sense that these are the objects that filled their homes. It's not so much their art collection because they had a lot more art than is being sold here. Much of it had been donated to various museums, the family, uh, but David in particular were, were great patrons and participants at MoMA and their works in uh, numerous other museums, uh, I believe. And, and one presumes that those museums got, if not the pick, at least uh, works that were important to their collections and important to their making a, a donation. So the rest of the works that we have, they lived with them. You mentioned the Diego Rivera. I'm assuming it was not in a room. I think in your catalog, you have a picture of it in, in a den in, uh, somewhere. It doesn't look to be surrounded with, you know, Mesoamerican uh, objects. It's not like these are, are works that were arranged thematically around ideas, but were arranged around their personal taste. Yes, I, I think that the organizing there were, there were many organizing principles, and that's been one of the most interesting things about working on this collection for such a long time because it's allowed me and a number of my colleagues to delve deeply into the history of, the collect, history of collecting and the history of their collection and their sub-collections. So it was not thematically arranged according to place of production or year of production. But through the collection, those lines of traditional academic museum-oriented collecting were followed. So, for example, in terms of the 19th and 20th century pictures, in particular the large group advised by Alfred Barr, um, the collection ranged from the artists that Barr saw as the foundation stones of Impressionism, so and modernism, ultimately, Corot and Delacroix, um, through um, Fauvism, deeper into the 20th century, um, and really ending in terms of collecting um, with the German works of art that have been created um, in the Weimar Republic. The, the Rockefellers recoiled from the, from the Nazis and had no German art in their collection until after the war when they bought a group that filled out their interest in European culture. Um, but all degenerate artists um, and very much connected with the Bauhaus and Stuttgart and their love of Mies van der Rohe and architecture. So, for example, the Paul Klee in the collection is ex-collection of Mies van der Rohe. The the organizing principle was usually about some significant moment in intellectual history, but not necessarily the dominant narrative that was everywhere. And it's a very interesting thing about this collection, and that's how we've laid out the catalogs, both with traditional art history and also David Rockefeller's and Peggy Rockefeller's particular view on history of culture, history of the world, history of religion, history of art. The, the, there was a connection to Germany. David spent some time in, in Germany in his career, I thought. He, he did. As, as part of the requirement for earning a PhD in the United States in the 20th century was a working knowledge of German. And before he headed to the University of Chicago to earn his PhD in economics, um, he spent time in either 1933 or 1934 
in Munich, which is where he he worked on his German, and he traveled extensively through Germany. Um, and the family, the family porcelain collection had always had a heavy German aspect, not surprisingly, given how many great German makers there are. And you see in it all of these birds representing the greatest German production, especially Meissen, throughout the collection. The paintings aspect uh, he went back to, because it, as with so many collectors in the 20th century and collectors educated and scarred by World War II, most American collectors were French collectors. We see, and of course, that's where the great strength of this collection is. It's the greatest group of French pictures to come on the market in 30 years. One of the reasons I think that American collections have frequently avoided German pictures is not because of the art historical importance, but because of the political overlay. So they did not address this in this particular collection. And despite MoMA's ultimate deep interest in German pictures, and especially in post-war German pictures, Rockefeller found a group of German pictures um, only in the 50s and collected them at that point and didn't expand it enormously. But you have Kirchner, Nolda, uh, Yavlensky, the painters most identified with modernism in Germany. And, and he, as a collector, moves forward into abstract expressionism, uh, but kind of ends in the late uh, 50s, early 60s. We don't get pop art. We don't get uh, minimalism. There's sort of a, a sense of he reaches his uh, majority, uh, his taste is fo formed, and, and he's no longer uh, uh, interested in, in what we might have called at the time contemporary art. But Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's the case that the, that the collection represents relatively few things deep late into the 20th century. Um, the Rothko, of course, was sold a, a decade ago to fund some philanthropic giving. Uh, there's a marvelous late to Kooning and a Calder that they had commissioned for their house in St. Bart's. But what we've discovered is that he had a deep and abiding interest in contemporary art and contemporary artists. But after he had put, they had put together their collection, largely in the 50s, 60s, adding things later, 70s, but focusing on earlier art of the 20th century in the very late 19th century, he engaged in his interest in contemporary art by his partnership with MoMA and his deep involvement with, amazingly, urban planning and the development of Soho and Tribeca and the Artist-in-Residence program in New York City. So we've learned is that as the president of Chase, and this may be an apocryphal story, but I think, in, I think the, the, the facts are exactly what led to this. His office was downtown at 1 Chase Manhattan Plaza, the great modernist building, the great modernist plaza, but he still, they, the family still lived on the Upper East Side, and he would look north from One Chase Manhattan Plaza and see all of Tribeca and Soho empty. And he worked with the city, and ultimately, of course, his brother Nelson and other people involved in politics, and nurtured the um, 
the, the alliance, the downtown alliance, and created, understood that the adaptive reuse of all these industrial buildings would be key to creating a community of artists and other people. So between the exhibition program at MoMA, which they continue to fund, and this is how we invested not in art that had been created or was being created, but in funding artists and artist production. And, and um, that building, they also uh, commissioned a Giacometti work uh, uh, of many pieces uh, 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 that never got uh, made. The, the works got made, but it never got in, in, in installed. And, and uh, one from that has become a, a very significant uh, event in the art market about... Um, uh, eight, uh, ten years ago. And there's the um, uh, Du Buffet Four Trees. I think it's Four Trees. Absolutely. That, that still, I believe, is still down in the plaza uh, uh, there. It is. But, and, but at that time, that was contemporary art. I guess that my, my point is, you know, he's got these great building projects, these, these great moments of high modernism, that building being sort of one of them. Uh, but then, uh, you know, uh, as you say, he, his sort of interest somewhat move, moves on. He doesn't keep uh, uh, looking for the next wave of uh, uh, art. Uh, maybe that's just where, where his interest left, or maybe he, uh, I guess what I'm asking is, was he turned off by uh, pop art? Was he turned off by the sort of conceptual tur- turn uh, uh, of art? Or is just, you know, but this time he's in his 50s. I mean, one of the things that's significant about all of this is the man lives to 100. He has a very long life, and he's, yeah. he's a significant figure quite a long time, time ago. It's not odd for people's taste to somewhat you know, get yeah. set in their 50s and 60s. Yeah. I, my, my sense is that his great love and Peggy's great love, because it was very much a collection made together, was both art historically rigorous because of his education and his sort of sense that he had grown up at, at MoMA. Um, as, as we know, his family's house, when it was torn down, provided the land for the sculpture garden at, at MoMA. And we know that he remained so deeply involved with MoMA and its contemporary program until the end of his life. So on an art historical basis and on an, and an, and the basis of intellectual appraisal, I'm absolutely confident that he was aware of and deeply involved with and engaged with contemporary art through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, until his death. Their love, their passion, their joy, which you see throughout the collection and was quite different from his brother's taste and his mother's taste and his father's taste, was about the paintings of late of the late 19th century and the 20th century until World War II, often about nature, joy, lushness, pleasure. Although the Rockefellers may have a reputation for dry, or you may have expected, a non-centralist approach. In fact, the paintings, many of the paintings, are either incredibly voluptuous in terms of figure. The Matisse Odalisque is one of the most glamorous and seductive paintings that any of us has seen on the market in decades. 
Um, the Picasso young girl is to be read in many ways, but surely a meditation on adolescence or pre-adolescence or young adulthood and women and power. He was deeply engaged with these kinds of issues. The other and the foil to the collection in terms of paintings was both the enormous diversity of paintings about flower and landscape, which, whether it's the Monet Nymphaeus, but through the Impressionist pictures, through the post-Impressionist pictures, the Manets, the, the Redons, everything is pulsing with color and nature. And that held true also in terms of the American pictures, where one of the most glorious Charles Demuth watercolors of zinnias still is bright as you can imagine, gloriously bright, tumble of flowers. Um, and the American landscape, the Fairfield Porter, which is actually featured on the cover of the American Evening Sale, or the America's Evening Sale, is this ship moving through the blue waters of New England with the forest beyond. They had a, a both a meditative and a sensual approach to their works of art. And if I were thinking about it from a personal perspective, I see that as what drove their collecting. Because he was he was so interesting in that he had that he explored so many different fields. Here is a, a man who was trained as a professional economist at the University of Chicago. Always a, a deeply serious sort of techie school. Um, and on the other pole, his first collecting interest, a collection that's now at the Harvard Science Museums of Beatles. But the way the Beatle collection began, to me, is what starts to provide a clue. They were on a grand tour trip to Egypt in the 20s, I believe it was. His father and grandfather had been quite religious, and the family went on a Holy Land tour from Cairo through northern Sinai to the Dead Sea to Jerusalem to Megiddo, up the coast to Beirut, and then home. An absolutely classic tour. And that's what began his interest in Near Eastern archaeology and led to the funding of all of the expeditions throughout the Middle East that formed the basis of the holdings of the Oriental Institute in Chicago and of the Rockefeller Institute, which is now part of the Jerusalem, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. On that trip, he was given or found a scarab. And of course, a scarab has a beetle. And from that discovery of the beetle and his interest in that, he began the lifelong pursuit to eventually build this collection of 250,000 beetles. So from everywhere he went. From everywhere he went, there are several volumes on it, a seriously academic study of beetles, but driven by an object that he had discovered from antiquity that he kept close. So it almost every aspect of the collection defies expectations in terms of the usual way in which somebody would have put a collection together.
I want to talk about the marketing of the collection, but before we do, there's I think there's one last sort of issue to just discuss with the name Rockefeller. Immediately, people assume grandfather was the wealthiest man in the world at the the time, certainly a name synonymous with, with, with wealth. And we're selling his effects, his estate. But it's probably, and this sort of makes the, the collecting a little more impressive, important to remember that his personal wealth is somewhat separate from having been a Rockefeller. He obviously had an income from the, the family and all, all but they, they bought art on their income, as it were. Obviously, it was a great deal of income, and they had an opportunity to buy anything that they felt like buying, but they didn't necessarily spend a great deal of money on their art. There's the famous story you've done, and it's probably worth rehashing uh, here, of that when Gertrude Stein's collection becomes available... It's not like uh, he doesn't just write a check and say, great, I'm going to have uh, Gertrude Stein's art collection. He puts a consortium of people together. They get their picks of the works and all. In retrospect, the amount that people paid for works of art in the early part of the 20th century seem low compared to now. And I have a sense that the Rockefellers often paid very ample market prices at that time. And that held true also for his father, who famously was skeptical about paintings and felt much more comfortable spending money in terms of the kinds of objects um, that he bought. And skeptical in terms of modern paintings, but was very, very comfortable in terms of spending enormous amounts of money for things like the unicorn tapestries, the various works of art at the cloisters, and Chinese porcelain. David's impetus and David's education in part came through his mother, Abby, who of course was one of the founders of the Museum of Modern Art. And Abby was an absolutely radical thinker, along with the two other women members, founders of the Museum of Modern Art, pushing the boundaries dramatically in terms of collecting modern art with the help of both um, Edith Halpert, the gallery owner, and Dorothy Miller, the curator. And I think that Rockefeller's David and Peggy Rockefeller's purchases and their involvement in something like the consortium to buy the works of art from the estate of Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas was not driven by the famous Rockefeller carefulness about overspending, but rather by this lifelong commitment to the mission of MoMA as the primary driving factor in his collecting life for paintings. And in fact, the part of the collection that was given to MoMA, which was given in 1994, the division of the collection, the allocation of the collection between what would ultimately go to MoMA and was completed on his death and 
a picture to the Met and a picture to the National Gallery, was decided three decades ago. As part of their lifelong collecting, they were working with Alfred Barr and then Bill Lieberman to buy and allocate paintings to fill in gaps in MoMA's collection. So for instance, the great Fauve group and the single Cezanne boy in a red jacket were destined to go to MoMA. This other collecting was at Alfred Barr's same high level, but always understood to ultimately create the funds to then give to MoMA, Harvard, the Rockefeller University, as a cash gift. The other part of that is that the Rockefellers, no less than anyone else in the world, had to create deals for purchasing works of art from collectors that also kept in mind other collectors' interests in ultimately having certain works of art go to museums and being sure that they were placed in museums. Not so different an issue from galleries now and sort of perhaps requiring somebody to buy something from a museum and something that can be in their collection for themselves. In order for the consortium that the Museum of Modern Art had, there was a requirement either among the group of um, supporters of MoMA and or Alice Toklas's estate itself that certain pictures would absolutely be destined for the Museum of Modern Art. So Bill Paley's promise to give the boy with a horse to MoMA, or ultimately Bill Lieberman's allocation of either that picture or the girl with the basket of flowers, was part and parcel of access to that entire group. The Cezanne boy in a red jacket was available with another group of works. And it was only if the boy in the red jacket was a promised gift to MoMA that the other great works, which are now being sold, would be allowed out of the collection. So that's actually what was the driving motivation for him in collecting. He had his own collection, which he wanted to be the best in the world. And he had the museum of which he was chair and of which his mother had was the founder. So it's a much richer, more interesting mix. And, and I guess it still makes the point is, you know, the art market and our understanding of the art market has become overshadowed by by money. And there's the perception at the moment that money is the only thing that matters. Uh, and I, the point, I guess, uh, uh, you've made very nicely that that's worth making more broadly is money isn't the only thing that gets you access to these works. And there's a level of politicking that uh, required a consortium and all this other deal-making to get get the ownership for however many decades of these w w works until they were uh, 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 promised. And it's just a, a reminder that this isn't just simply you walk in and whoever pays the highest price uh, gets whatever they like, e even if you are David Rockefeller and all, all of this. And Carrying on from that, part of what creates 
the market sensation here is that it is so unusual to get access to works of this level because in the prior transactions where they would have been available, they were available to Mr. Rockefeller only because of Mr. Rockefeller's position as the head of MoMA and donor to MoMA, the Met, and the National Gallery. This gives, in that sense, a playing field for masterpieces of the first level that simply hasn't been available before. That's a perfect segue. So you are entrusted with this estate to sell, and your firm has just had uh, this extraordinary success with a work of art that has toured the globe and had lines around the block for it. And you now have to think about how to market all of this. The Rockefeller name is obviously a very powerful one to conjure with, but David Rockefeller dies at 103 long after he's a, a common figure in the newspapers and a, a, a person that everyone knows and understands uh, that he's a titan. Most people, I, I think, today would, would have trouble telling you who David Rockefeller was in his life and what he did for a business, but they obviously know he's an important and very wealthy uh, a man. And part of your job in to add value to all of this for, for the estate is to tell these stories and remind people. And I was struck by the fact that you chose to take the works first to Hong Kong. I know the Rockefeller family has a long history with, with China, but is that because that was the first place um, available to you in the sort of global exhibition uh, uh, schedule? Or was it because you, you wanted to sort of start with the Asian market and see what the response was? I think it's, it's wise to start with the very point that you raised, which is that David and Peggy Rockefeller, as marvelous philanthropists in the late 20th century, with a celebrated business career, were real people who had real impact and are known by a relatively small number of people in terms of identifying them specifically as members of the Rockefeller family. And there is a marvelous story to be told about what David and Peggy themselves did in terms of their own commitment to philanthropy, taking the family into the the next stage, and their own projects, and their own particular collecting. Our job is certainly to celebrate that and, and relay it in the most dignified and appropriate way possible. Our other job is to make as much money for this philanthropic estate as possible with as many buyers from as many places as possible. And the way we did that was to make what I think is the honest appraisal that it is the family name Rockefeller that is most important for most of the world. And that it's Rockefeller Center, Rockefeller University, the various Rockefeller charities, which David and his branch may very well have supported and, and cared about deeply, but are not personally identified necessarily with that. So unlike, so the, the, the marketing job 
is actually much more difficult, complicated, and sophisticated than when we are asked to sell a celebrity sale. So in the case of Elizabeth Taylor, Elizabeth Taylor has a brand, and our job was to refine it, burnish it, and present it to the public. The Rockefeller family has broad awareness, and our job was to create brands that resonated in various parts of the world, which were, as it turned out to be, very specific and very regional for each particular client base. And for me personally, one of the only positive elements that came out of watching our last national election was a realization that there can be so many different perceptions of a single set of facts, and they can be overlapping or relatively inconsistent. And what one has to accept is that there are 20 or 25 or 30 or 50 different ideas about something. So the I, so the notion that Rockefeller has a single brand is something that we dispensed with. And instead, we've created many, many sub-brands. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, directly to your answer to your question about Asia and why we launched in Asia. David Rock, John D. Rockefeller's first charity in the late 19th century was to missionary work in China from his first paycheck he gave money to China. Early in the 20th century, he funded the medical school that is now the great medical school of China. They were very interested in city planning and hygiene. They funded all of that. So Rockefeller is an extremely famous name in China. That coupled with the fact that buyers from Asia have become one third of our buyers in the impressionist and modern field in the last five years made it absolutely natural that instead of sending to China, and Hong Kong in particular, only a small sampling at the last minute of some of the minor works, we decided to launch it there. And it gave us the opportunity to talk with the Chinese public about this collection, about philanthropy with the various elements within Hong Kong and the mainland, which are starting to develop interest in philanthropy, which linked directly back to what our client cares about. It's raising the most money, but it's also furthering the idea of philanthropy in the world. And this was the perfect way to do that. Um, the CCTV is continuing to make a documentary that they began last November in Hong Kong, following the sale around the world. And that will have, I guess, 900 million viewers in the mainland over the next few weeks. So our interest is telling the story, refining the brand, and selling the pictures for as much as possible in China. Japan was another story, where Japan had another completely different narrative, different from the Chinese narrative, but one that by virtue of a digital campaign and a communications campaign is different. For the Middle East, the, the Gulf, this story of a family of great wealth from energy resources 
turning that wealth into museums, universities, social welfare, and transforming a nation in a, a continent in a hundred years is exactly resonant with what we're seeing in Qatar, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia. And so that is how we have been discussing Rockefeller there. They link up on many levels. Right? They link up on the quality of the objects, collectors of Impressionist and modern work, collectors of English furniture. You can link at those levels. But the resonance comes from the linkage with the culture. I hadn't known before we embarked on this that the Rockefeller family in France, for example, where they're very well known, after World War I, paid for the renovations and restorations of both Versailles and Fontainebleau and Reims Cathedral. And in a family that had the greatest collection of French paintings, with, at its core, the group of works owned by Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas, the resonance in Paris and in France was enormous, which helps explain why there were so many lines. Does that translate directly into the lines because there's so much publicity about the, this and the story is resonant for people that they want, then want to have the opportunity, the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to say, I went and I saw those objects when they were here. Absolutely. And the, and the objects we sent to Paris, uh, the, to walk into the room at our headquarters in Paris and see the great Seurat Pointillist picture and Garçon Lazare by Monet, and that extraordinary Picasso in the city where they were either created or displayed was indel indelibly powerful. And it allows us, and this is where I think a lot of the work of engaging Christie's is so important, is creating that marketing, making that marketing communicating with all of those buyers, adding the extra bidders at every level in the sale is so key. I'll just end with, with Great Britain, it was something different. The Rockefellers had a great love of Great Britain. The most important, part of the most important part of Rockefeller Center is the British Empire building right around the corner with all of the materials that created the wealth of the British Empire. David Rockefeller had very close connections there. And what we discovered is that Rockefeller paid for the major building at the London School of Economics, paid for major labs at um, the Institute of Tropical Diseases, and also funded Watson and Crick. So there is such a deep English connection and English porcelain. So what we communicate to the public, to journalists, both traditional, print, and digital, is even more weighted to that. So this multi-layered marketing is the greatest shift that I've seen in terms of how we approach the market for selling a great sale. It's rare that you... Um get one body of work this large, this variegated, with this kind of global appeal that you would actually be able to see that. Yeah, I mean, this is probably really more you're discovering that something's happened within Christie's over the last few years, but you wouldn't normally see it because you wouldn't normally be involved in one thing all around the world the way this has been. You, you're, you're absolutely right. But the 
lessons learned in this will inform every piece of business I work on from now on because knowing viscerally that Christie's brand or the brand of a particular object is highly dependent on the way that you present that to the market and that in fact the skill of selling is about how you present it to the market. Um, obviously, that was that was the story of the Leonardo da Vinci. It is the story of the Rockefeller collection generally. That will now hold true for many many objects. So it is the it's the development of your skill set about doing that for a Rockefeller collection or for a collection of 12 objects, is there another way of marketing this and speaking to the public that you know either through traditional ways or digitally about what might inspire them to participate? That's a new lesson. And and I should uh, pause here to do a little commercial. This will come out... Uh, just as the catalogs are coming out for the uh, sale. And uh, in April, all of this uh, hullabaloo will finally make its way. I suppose it's appropriate that the parade ends in Rockefeller Center for there'll be a a week, two weeks of the works on display before they're sold? About 10 days um, before they're sold, open to the public, but on an online reservation Model really wow, um, that's it, a blockbuster uh, uh, way to handle things. It will again building on our experience with Elizabeth Taylor, where the management of the number of people became so is so important, um, uh, and 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 with the Da Vinci, the the, the Leonardo yep. managing getting people in to come past it and seeing their reactions was a big part of not, not just providing that service to them and, and making your lives better, but it ended up being part of the marketing was managing the crowds and making that experience. Yep. And it will occupy all of our historic presence at Rockefeller center, which is the, when, which is where we moved when we converted this from other uses at rock center. Uh, and it should be a very, glamorous and educational tour through all of the different categories and I think conveys the magic and surprise and seriousness of the collection. And it's it's not room sets the way it was lived in by the family in New York or upstate or in Maine, although there will be you, there will be educational aspects about that, but we will be combining them um, in a way that is also a very fresh perspective that again is consistent with the joyous aspect that underscored the collecting so so it'll be seeing the collection in a way that it was never experienced by the Rockefellers because it, it, the, their works were in their various homes. Here you'll actually make a, a show out of the, them where some of it will be thematic, uh, others will, will just be yeah. displaying, but it'll be a very different way of uh, looking at it. Um, I, I do want to ask whether 
and, and uh, I'm sorry, I have a slightly long preface to, to this. Uh, when, when you first announced uh, uh, many of the lead works, the estimates that came out were uh, fairly strong. And in the time since then, uh, and and it, it, full disclosure, I think I was kidding you uh, at one point asking, are these you know estimates for the work? Are these Rockefeller estimates because of the fame of the owners and all? And uh, it shows how much uh, I know about the art market. We subsequently have seen your estimates be revised upwards in uh, sort of the very lead lot cases. I've certainly had conversations with others who expect some of those works to exceed even those uh, estimates. And you have a number of works uh, in the catalog that are listed estimate upon request. I'm assuming that the success of these various events and marketing uh, tours and the lines has brought in interest that has allowed you to have confidence to raise those uh, estimates both on the the you know most visible lots but also around uh, you know there's so much high quality art here yeah. the the various corners of the collecting cat- categories uh, we knew from the moment of launch given that it was nine months or 10 months before the sale that we would inevitably adjust the estimates either up or down depending on the feedback we got from people seeing it. Um, I don't think that it is as much, it is as much about the crowds and the lines as it is the response of rather sophisticated buyers and collectors in the market to the quality of the pictures and their sense of what that might be, what they might be worth and properly estimated at five or 10 years after we had originally looked at it. And because estimates are meant and ranges, I should say, are meant to give buyers a sense of what might be the right range for purchasing, um, we had we had to amend some. Um, some are not more more ambitious. Some there are there are markets there are markets that haven't moved dramatically since five years ago, and I think that's those those you wouldn't find a, a significant change. So you bring up a, a really interesting point that goes to the sort of uh, the inside baseball uh, of all of this. You, you you certainly have a lot of experience as a trust and estate lawyer yourself and leading the uh, department here. And you know, well, this is obviously a, uh, a somewhat unique in size and fame uh, estate. I'm assuming there are some lessons to be learned from all of this. This uh, arrangement was conceived some time ago. The financial advisors made an arrangement w- with you that uh, uh, certainly seems, as you were talking about, being able to raise the estimates. You you gave you a little bit of headroom that your you know the mar- the market has gone in, uh, in your direction uh, and all. But the, the, it was an aggressive uh, uh, group. They they they're there to maximize uh, the return to the uh, charities, and uh, they did their job well uh, all over town. Uh, and so I, I I wonder, 
bracketing what's special about them, do you see this message getting across or do you see the trust and estates community paying attention to this and thinking through differently how they approach art in an estate? Yes, I, I, I think that certainly most collectors understand that works of art and collections are not a commodity and that to sell them for the most and have the public understand the intent of the owner, either with respect to the disposition of the proceeds or with respect to the perception of that collector's mission in putting the collection together requires a highly detailed approach that is not formulaic. And for those collectors who are deeply involved emotionally with their works of art and want to ensure that they are presented to the market with an appropriate message and the dignity that they would expect, there are many, many discussions with advisors and collectors about how a collection would be managed after they die. And that is, that has been true for a number of years. Certainly uh, the collection that we sold a few years ago for the Jonas family under the auspices of the Jewish Communal Fund, a family that was very interested in funding nursing care in particular and made a decision to sell during their life and create a platform for the philanthropic gifts, we see that on a not insignificant number of the sales that come to market. And that also goes to another point. I think you mentioned earlier that this was self-conscious with the Rockefellers is part of seeing art as an asset it no longer is the only way to um, deal with it is either to sell it or to uh, donate it to a museum, but there is a way to realize the value of the, uh, of the asset, but still make it uh, a charitable uh, contribution in, in one or many forms. I mean, America is extraordinary that way. The, while there are great museum collections and great gifts to museums, there are also moments of enormous fundraising by virtue of the sale of works of art. Rockefeller's a perfect amalgam. The 1994 gifts were made, and now MoMA will benefit substantially from a cash gift, um, which for many museums, which, which for a museum is interesting because it doesn't present the question of accessioning, deaccessioning, and for Organizations like the Rockefeller University or the David Rockefeller Center at um, for Latin American Studies at Harvard, the 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 funding gift is the is the critical aspect. So, so everyone wins. Absolutely. Well. Uh, thank you for taking the time to do this, and I hope uh, you end up winning, uh, though it looks like the um, the chances of that not happening, given the, the interest and the volume of work, and uh, generally the state of the art market seems uh, uh, fairly slow. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 